Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in an undisclosed location without power, thanks to the recent wave of thunderstorms on America's East Coast. We just regained power in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. Not David, too far- David yeah. we thought that you were doing this podcast telep- through telepathy. I, those are certain secrets that are known only to the deep state, Rosa. Um, <laughs> it was all part of a science project. Rosa Brooks is in the vicinity of the Ministry of SNARK, as is Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. Up in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, we have Dan Benjamin. And over in England, uh, off of the Eurostar (laughs) train, could not hear her the last time, we have Corey Shockey. Corey, where were you going on the Eurostar train? I had been in Paris and I was heading home to London. and, And it was so frustrating because I was shouting my commentary to you, and yet I was raging against a foaming sea. Wow, raging <laughs> against a foaming sea. That's that dramatic. A, that's very I, dramatic. And you weren't in the, the quiet car, sea. were you? No, she's in the quiet car. I, I suspect a plot against us guys because towards the end of the podcast, I was also raging against a foaming sea and I was offering all kinds of astute observations that you guys couldn't hear. Uh, and I think it probably means that the forces of darkness, e.g. the Trump administration, are out to get us. Alternatively, it could mean that David has a censorship button that he has long <laughs> been way too generous and indulgent with us about, Rosa. Yeah, I wish, I, I wish that that were, tr- that were true. I don't have any control over any of this. Um, uh, and I'm sort of subscribing to Rose's theory about the forces of darkness. Um, having said that, it hasn't really been a really good week for the forces of darkness on multiple fronts. And one of the ones that I'd like to start with here has to do with North Korea. Those of you who follow these things may recall that just a few days ago, Donald Trump was in front of rallies in various parts of America in which people were going, Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize. And Donald Trump (laughs) was winning the Nobel Prize. And it was all for achieving a peace deal with the North Koreans. Um, And then in the past couple of days, the North Koreans have said, you know what, maybe not so much. And then on top of that, they said, John Bolton, the national security advisor, is repugnant, thus creating the very strange feeling that I, I, I for me, <laughs> I see where this is headed. 
They do have a point about that. Yeah, back to Yeah, exactly. I mean, they also said that if if Trump succumbed to the influence of Bolton, it would result in a ridiculous comedy, which. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're all hoping for. Right. This this that's what we're all part of. This from those wonderful wordsmiths who gave us dotard not too long ago. Goddard. Goddard is how it's pronounced. Yeah. Well, I'm in New Jersey and we can barely pronounce anything. But um so Evelyn, you know, you've been watching this and 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 I've even seen you on the television talking about this. What are those North Korean scamps up to? Well, I will tell you that um, this should not have surprised anyone because remember, we already did a show on this ages ago where we said the cart is way before the horse, even before he pronounced himself a Nobel Prize recipient. Um, Remember, we said the president should be the closer. So we don't even know what Trump is going to negotiate with the North Koreans. So it's obvious that any number of things can intervene in between to, you know, take the car, the cart off the rails or whatever analogy you want to use. So the North Koreans are doing what they normally do, which is, you know, reasserting control. And they've been, we've been in a reactive mode all along. They released what I would call hostages, basically, and our president praised them for that, you know. Um, And and so all along, they've kind of had the initiative, even with the setting of the initial meeting, although, you know, as we mentioned earlier, President Moon Jae-in gets the most credit for that. I think now two things have happened, I think. And, and some of this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, I will admit. So the first one has to do with internal dynamics. You know, Kim, um, so Kim Il-sung, he basically, there are, two, there are two centers of power in North Korea. There's the party and the army, the armed forces. Kim Il-sung, the original leader, grandfather of Kim Jong-un, he's the guy who said, okay, the party's preeminent. Then Kim Il-sung came in, he had to do something different, he made the armed forces preeminent. And he's the guy who went out all out on the nuclear program. And then the son comes in, he says, I'm going to go all out on the nuclear program, but I'm going to be more like my grandfather, I'm going to get fat like him, and also I'm going to uh, basically elevate the party. And so they had a party congress, which they hadn't had since 1980. Okay, so the military, the military, I think this is in part... Don't body shame this poor guy. Okay, I'm sorry, and I'm talking too long. So bottom line is, like, I think internal dynamics probably have some factor in this because we started the military exercises in April when they were naval exercises. I guess they were kind of tolerable to the armed forces, but I think these air exercises, it's a little different thing, um, and they probably reached a boiling point. That's a little bit of conjecture on my part. The second part is not conjecture because Kim Gui Kwan, who has been the longtime nuclear negotiator, I mean, he's the guy who knows everything we don't know about how to negotiate with North Korea. He came out and called John Bolton, you know, basically came out with that criticism of John Bolton. He was around when they were calling John Bolton scum. That was their earlier moniker for him. So I think they're saying, look, we know how to play this game better than you do and watch yourselves. Well, yeah, I, I think maybe they're demonstrating, Dan, that they, they do know how to play this game better than us. Because it seems to me that what they did was they gave a little bit, got Trump on the hook. He all of a sudden owned a victory in Singapore, uh, and he needed one. And then they started pulling it back, and they started saying, okay, what's it worth to you? Um, it seems to me like they're playing this pretty well. Do you agree? It's a glorious thing to behold watching uh, real pros do this. And 
and uh, show uh, uh, Trump and, and his uh, and his company, you know, what it's like to truly be jerked around by by masters. I mean, by real professionals, you know, Trump, uh, you know, for the great deal maker, Trump, you know, pretty much falls for everyone who winks at him. Uh, you know, look at the the embrace of Saudi Arabia. You know, when they fall, they fall hard. It's not uh, it's not like a measured courtship or anything like that with lots of carefully hedged moves or anything. Um, they just uh, they do the emotional belly flop, and uh, this is what they get for it. By the way, just to uh, you know, or in relation to that, I just want to say uh, regarding the opening that I do not think the administration is nearly competent enough to actually uh, deploy the forces of darkness against the uh, awesome target that is this this podcast. Um, and I think that this uh, uh, this uh, uh, you know imbroglio with uh, the North Koreans uh, uh, shows it again. You know the. There's so much to admire in this. Um, first of all, the effort to separate the national security advisor, you know, who's been in his job for about a month uh, from the White House. Um, you know, they're doing a pretty good job. Trump's probably saying, I really want this deal. I need this deal. I got to distract people somehow. And I want that Nobel Prize. And uh, who's this who's this clown Bolton? Uh, what's it? What was he doing when he said, uh, let's, you know, let's follow the Libya model? Uh, which you know was uh, you know a big <laughs> threat into the hull of this ship. So um, yeah, well, it didn't work out for Gaddafi. I think that's the key point. Yeah, I mean, you know, how how much more obvious could you be that you were trying to torpedo the whole thing? And let me just say in conclusion that I believe that the Nobel Foundation would go out of business rather than give the Nobel Prize to Donald Trump. Um, it's just a matter of cultural attitudes, but that's my bet. I'm sticking with it. I think that's absolutely accurate, and I think we should all take your bet. And now that sports betting is legal across America, maybe we should develop the deep state radio sort of sports betting arm, where we. Can I am sort all in favor of us opening up wagering on these events in order to do the kind of rigorous testing of the deep state radio nerds' willingness to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, well, I think rigorous testing is one thing. And by the way, you may remember, deep state nerds, that former national security advisor and um, a man who ran afoul of the law, Admiral John Poindexter, got in a little bit of trouble after he ran afoul of the law for deciding that he was going to try to tap into the wisdom of crowds by actually setting up a system where experts could bet on outcomes around the world as a way of helping us to anticipate it. But people decided that having people bet against our allies was probably uh, something <laughs> that was kind of <laughs> Yes, total information <laughs> awareness. That was a great thing. And But by the way, you know, the financial markets do it every day. So, you know, go figure. Yeah, yeah well, and, and not so well. Corey, I'm now going to do something I've never done. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to tell you something you don't know. Okay, um, because I, th you know, I've, I've, you know, the, as you know, the the dividing line between North and South Korea is the thirty eighth parallel, right? Okay. You know that, right? I mean, we refer to the thirty eighth parallel as the dividing line between North. Do you know that the thirty eighth parallel is also the location of the White House? And I think. <laughs> 
Um, uh, although it's 38.9 north, or it's actually 38.89 north. But, but in any event, I think the North Koreans are really good at playing games around the 38th parallel. And right now what they're trying to do is to put a wedge along it and create tension along it between the Oval Office and the corner West Wing office of John Bolton. Uh, That's some pretty feet. nice geolocation. Thank right? you. That's, that yeah, that's both on your part and on the North Koreans' part. Um, I love Dan's point about the North Koreans being the real masters at this business and the grifters in the Trump administration being amateurs and getting played. I think that's likelier true than not. But um, I have a heavy dose of skepticism that any of us actually know what's going on in North Korea. And therefore, we need a strategy that has a very wide margin of error because we're going to get a lot of important things wrong and we're going to need to be very sensitive to leading indicators of where we may have stuff wrong and therefore quickly recalibrate. And of course, that it neither the sensitivity of understanding nor the <clears throat> malle excuse me intellectual malleability <coughs> to adjust their positions are long suits of the Trump administration so i really worry they're going to get caught in a brittle place <coughs> could go badly wow. wow the the dark forces are now poisoning corey I am not in Salisbury at the moment, but I am in Britain at the moment, and I am okay, David. Thank you very much for your concern. So, no, no. so the first thing is, I think we need a really wide margin of error on North Korean policy and need to think very carefully about red teaming our assumptions and looking for leading indicators of change. The North Koreans are, however, not particularly subtle, and the desire to... Um, to try and separate Trump and Bolton, I think is likely to backfire. Again, I'm not a North Korean expert, but it does seem to me that President Trump is not likely to kick Bolton overboard, even for a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, because Bolton is much more simpatico to the president's own views than the previous national security advisor. And I don't think there was an enormous stampede of people looking for that honor and opportunity. So I, I suppose Corey's right about this if Trump actually has some ideological leaning or belief. But if, in fact, Trump is just out for Trump, um, then we're going to see that because he's going to push aside Bolton. And by the way, within sort of hours of the North Koreans coming up with their objections, the White House gave a couple of hints that they actually would bend a little bit. They they disowned the Libya model. Um, uh, Sarah Sanders did that in a comment to the press. And then there were some rumblings that with these uh, air uh, war games that were going on in the Koreas, that the United States might not involve B-52s as a way of sending a message because B-52s are nuclear delivery systems. So we're this could be a real test, Evelyn, of of, of, of what drives Trump foreign policy. 
Well, so first on the exercises, my understanding is that they did pull the B-52s, but that's not unusual. I mean, we do things like that. To, we modify exercises like that in the Defense Department in order to, you know, send a signal at a certain point in time. We held the line, though. The United States held the line on holding these exercises, with the North, which the North Koreans definitely did not want us to do. The fact that they are making noise now is sort of interesting. As I said before, it may be because of the types of exercises, or it just may be that the military finally asserted itself, or it just may be the excuse they're using. I think what is obvious is that Trump is going to try to keep pushing for this meeting because, as you said, David, he's about his agenda. I don't think the North Koreans are going to require that he fire John Bolton. Um, I feel like that would have been something they would have made known earlier if that was a real kind of condition. You know, they're they're just having a North Korean temper tantrum. They're putting us on alert that um, this is not going to be a cost free exercise. And but I, I would have to agree with Corey that there's too much unknown here because we don't know how much North Korea really, the North Korean government really feels like they want and need this deal. We know that economically, you know, they, they require the assistance from China and others, right, to keep their economy going. We know that this young leader has done more to modernize his economy and to make it more competitive, to, free, to make it more free than his father, because his father did things, but sporadically, he would kind of try something and then pull back. But we but we don't know whether that means there's a fundamental change in, in terms of how he'll respond to a package from the United States. And that was apparently what Pompeo was laying out in front of him. That was the most recent kind of direct interaction we had, U.S.-North Korea, was Pompeo laying out that deal. Maybe that spooked them, maybe not. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on, because we've got a lot of things to cover here. There's a lot of things going on in the world. And I'd like to get into a bit of a lightning round, and I'm going to shoot each one of you a question on a different kind of a subject. And I don't like else... it when people say I'm going to shoot each one of you. Well, um, I, you should get used to that. I think I think that's the, that's the new way. You know, uh, on the day we were taping this on Wednesday, uh, the president was meeting with a Uzbek leader uh, whose predecessor uh, apparently uh, uh, used to boil dissidents so you know i think jesus a, yeah he was yeah it's, it's a special uzbek thing yeah special uzbek soup they make um but it's uh uh you know this, this they is they served it with an aioli that was quite nice actually delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible. well done dan <laughs> okay um so let me just fire a couple of things out one at a time okay um, you just can't stop it with the metaphors. This is awful. Yeah, well, okay, let me pick up on one of those right there, uh, Rosa, and, and it will sound like I'm doing this uh, thoughtfully. Uh, one of the things that has happened today is a bunch of papers were released, one of which was by the bipartisan Senate uh, Intelligence Committee investigation into what's going on in the Russia front, and sort of buried in there was a story that I thought was kind of significant in which... Um, they said that the NRA, get all those shooting references, the NRA was actually working uh, uh, as a conduit for the Russians uh, to help the, the Trump administration, which just, you know, you've, it, it, we're really moving into territory 
where the NRA is becoming sort of the most evil organization in America, sh uh, uh, short of the Republican Party, perhaps. And, and hey, hey, hey! Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> Watch yourselves. Um, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm not speaking of the historical Republican Party. I'm speaking of the one we have now. But um, what, what, what do you think, Rosa? Why this would be the biggest story in the world for a month? For for. <laughs> <laughs> Were we in a different administration? You mean? Uh, yep. No, uh, you're you're right, and nicely done. I was it was very very nice segue from firing and shooting people right to the NRA as a tool of the Kremlin, uh, winning or unwitting. Um, no, it is it is both on some level completely bizarre, um, and we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, I I grew up uh, in the I, you know I was a kid in the '80s and and the you know, height of the Cold War, height of Cold War tensions. We all thought we were going to die in a nuclear war with Russia. Uh, and in fact, I, coming from a sort of lefty weirdo family in a town full of blue-collar Republicans, was constantly being told things at school contemptuously, like, oh, go back to Russia, which was very confusing to me since I had been to Russia and so <laughs> forth. Um, but, but, you know, Russia was the arch enemy. It was the arch fiend for, for most Americans, both mainstream Democrats and particularly for the Republican Party. Um, it was the evil empire. Uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, our president and everybody he's close to and the goddamn NRA are all buddy buddies with the Kremlin. It's, it's just astonishing. I mean, I think that the, the question that remains, of course, that to which we don't we don't ne we don't yet know the answer. We may never know the answer is to what extent were senior NRA officials aware that they were not only receiving funding from Kremlin-linked sources, but were being used quite deliberately as a tool both to influence Donald Trump himself and get access to Donald Trump and to influence the outcome of the elections. Um, you know, I, who knows? We'll, we'll, maybe we'll find out, maybe not. But, but it, is, it is shocking, and it continues to shock me that the the solid, you know, 35-ish percent of Americans who have supported Donald Trump through thick and thin, and my sense is that roughly the same, that pretty much overlaps directly with the dwindling percentage of Americans that still likes the NRA, uh, they don't seem at all troubled by this. It doesn't bother them in the slightest. Yeah, well, and, and it would. Be, I can't wait for the, the NRA to say we had no idea when there were th these Russian guys at their big events, hobnobbing with the Trumps, and so forth. But as I said, we're going to move on to to, to several things here. Um, Dan, you did you know did a lot of work in the government on the counterterrorism front, and obviously, terrorism and and cross border attacks take a lot of forms these days. One of the things that uh, John Bolton, uh, uh, that you know, he of the North Korean fame, uh, has done in the past week was seek to close the office. Uh, in the NSC of the uh, person responsible for cyber attacks uh, and protecting us against cyber attacks. And again, you would think, given the Russians and the 2016 election, and also the fact that we're getting into higher tension with the Iranians who do some stuff in this area and so forth, that we would be more concerned, not less concerned about cyber attacks. And again, this would seem to be controversial if there wasn't a controversy every 15 or 20 minutes uh, that was new. So I'm just wondering, what's your take on that? Uh, well, a certain amount of uh, befuddlement. Um, you know, I, 
I, I find it uh, kind of uh, hard to interpret uh, beyond the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Bolton wanted uh, the last incumbent, Tom Bossert, out because he wasn't a Bolton guy. Um, it could well be uh, that uh, Bolton wants, you know, has someone that he has in mind to sort of be a, uh, a quarterback for this, if you'll forgive the bad sports metaphor. But, uh, you know, who, who's going to run this out of NSA or Cybercom or something like that? Um, the, um, you know, it's just very, very hard to imagine. I don't... Uh, well, but just to, forgive me for interrupting, but if you're at the NSA or, or you're at Cybercom, you can't run a whole of government approach, right? And there are parts of the government that, like the State Department, you might remember, that have a role to play in this. And the, well, the only place to run a whole of government approach is from the White House. Well, so that is uh, sensible and true. I can still imagine that when they have their um, situation room meetings, that um, you know, Cybercom. Uh, will be asked to deliver, you know, an analysis or a plan or a policy or something like that, and either Bolton or uh, one of his deputies uh, will essentially take it over with whole cloth in whole cloth, and that the whole thing will be coordinated ahead of time. Um, you know, it's not uh, it's not hard to imagine that, but it is, I think, incredibly foolish not to have someone who's going to be there. Uh, you know, essentially on call 24-7 to uh, deal with issues that have uh, White House significance. Um, and so, you know, this is just one of the many wacky things going on there that are really, uh, really hard to uh, uh, interpret. Um, Bolton, you know, Bolton is a, is a shrewd bureaucratic operator, so I can't imagine that he is uh, that he has not got a plan up his sleeve uh, for, uh, you know, how this is dealt with. It, it, the president today, in, in uh, making public comments, said the following, Mexico does nothing for us. They do nothing for us. Mexico talks, but they do nothing for us, especially at the border. Certainly don't help us much on trade. And I was just wondering, given that Mexico is our second largest export market, um, whether, you know, what you might think of this kind of, you know, um, uh, outburst from the president. Of all of the terrible, malevolent and false statements the president has made while campaigning for the presidency and while holding it, the disgraceful behavior towards a magnificent neighbor trading partner um, immigration partner and friend of our country that the president has made towards Mexico is far and away the most disgraceful, um, both in terms of his descriptions of them, the falsehoods he perpetrates about their actions, the threat he claims they pose. It is so outrageous and is so disrespectful to a country we are so desperately fortunate to have as a neighbor, that it, of all of the outrages candidate Trump and President Trump has perpetrated, the ones against our friends in Mexico and against Mexican Americans and against 
people who are both of those things are the most damaging, the worst self-inflicted wounds, and the most disgraceful. Okay, so let me pick up, follow that, go to Rosa, and then I'm going to go to Evelyn with another Russia question. But Rosa, another thing that the president said was, we have to break up families. The Democrats gave us that law. It's a horrible thing we have to break up families. The Democrats gave us that law, and they don't want to do anything about it. Um, even though it was his administration that said they were doubling down on this, uh, Sessions made it policy. Nielsen uh, has doubled down on it. And I was just wondering, you know, since there's a lot of talk these days about um, uh, the, 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 this issue, the president's decision to sort of blame it on the Democrats seems particularly egregious. Yes, it does. It's it's utterly dishonest. It's also just nuts. Um, but that's true of many of his statements. No, I, I mean, the 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 president has, as we have seen, um, enormous discretion when it comes to immigration. Uh, it is entirely a discretionary choice on the part of this administration to tear families apart in this fashion. You know, it and, and it. It's not required by some democratically created legislation at all. And, and in terms of international standards, it runs directly counter to international standards relating to the treatment of migrants and uh, particularly, of course, to those who are asylum seekers and refugees. Um, it's, it's, it's completely unconscionable. I mean, obviously, immigration, so it's, it's difficult, it's complicated. Uh, unless you favor completely open borders, you're going to have to be turning down some people who will be very sad and upset. Uh, and unless you favor a complete policy of, well, once you're here, you're here and that's the end of it, uh, which would probably not be a particularly good idea either. You're going to be you're going to be disappointing a lot of people. But but the the seemingly deliberate decision to do something that really is just causing needless terror and heartbreak for thousands upon thousands of people is morally shocking, not surprising. The president, since by the way, the president, I don't mean to interrupt you, but the president, um, you know, also in referring to some of these uh, illegal immigrants said, these aren't people, these are animals. Uh, no, I know. I they, Look, this is also an administration. That is that so shameful. It's completely shameful. Um, this is of a piece with an administration that is dismissing the deaths of uh, 60 some Palestinians and, and the injuring of thousands by Israeli forces uh, as as just, you know, well, it's all Hamas's fault. Um, just the, the sort of the, the degree of heartlessness um, that is so often on display coming from this administration just continues to shock me. You know, that when when children die. You don't say, well, it's all somebody else's, you know, that you, you know, when you're when you're tearing families apart, um, show a little tiny bit of compassion would be would be nice from the president of the United States and from his immediate family and closest advisors. But I, I don't we haven't seen it and I don't expect we'll ever see it. Yeah, it's the opposite of compassion. It's vile. And the, right. nothing, it's literally dehumanizing to say they're not people. Um, and and the did this as part of an attack on, on sanctuary cities uh, and an effort by some people in the United States to behave in a humane way. Uh, Evelyn, I, I promised to turn back to Russia with you, um, um, and I'm going to leave it a little open-ended. The Senate uh, Intelligence Committee came out with a lot of 
information today on meetings about the in the Trump on the Trump Tower meeting and Donald Trump Jr., who I think should seek help because he seems to have severe memory loss for a guy his age. Um, does you know you use the term I don't remember? I think 150 uh, times, uh, but but it does seem like some pieces are falling into place here uh, that you know suggest that even if at that meeting in Trump Tower there was not you know an active dump of 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 information um, from the Russians or the kind of information that the Trump team wanted, they were having the meeting for that purpose. They sought this bad information on Hillary Clinton, and they were actually disappointed when the Russians didn't deliver worse information on Hillary Clinton, which to me is a sign of intent to conspire, intent to seek the help of these Russian agents in the election. Uh, and that seems kind of material to me, but I'm you're a, you're a Russia expert. I'm wondering what you think. Well, well, it's not about Russia. I mean, the thing is that there's a foreign government who offered to provide something of value. You know, I'm using these terms because that's the legal term for a campaign contribution um, to the Trump campaign. And the campaign said, bring it on. We'd like to have it. Turns out it wasn't as valuable as they hoped, but it doesn't really matter. They accepted whatever it was that they were giving them. And, you know, for those of us who um, have better memories than Don Jr., we might remember back in the 90s when Bill Clinton got into trouble for taking money that was Chinese money, I guess, through a Taiwanese-American, if I remember the details correctly. I'm, I have a better memory maybe than Don, Don Jr., but I don't remember all the details mainly because it wasn't of great consequence to my life at the time. But, you know, they got in trouble and had to return the money, which they did. So, you know, this is a, just the same thing, and a foreign government trying to interfere with our elections. And in the Clinton example, as soon as they found out that this money was actually coming from a foreign entity, they took action. In this, in this, in this Trump example, they've been covering it up all along. And, you know, and it seems that there's a lot of other assistance that they received in addition to just this one meeting. This meeting occurs, you know, it's one of many interactions between Trump campaign officials and advisors and Russians linked to the Kremlin. Two, two more areas that I'd like to touch on uh, in this kind of whirlwind tour here. Um, Dan, I'd like to turn back to the Middle East. Uh, you've had experience uh, dealing with and tracking groups like Hamas. Uh, Rosa brought this up. Uh, clearly, Hamas has been behind these demonstrations. Uh, having said that, there's nothing that obligates the Israelis to use snipers uh, on the crowds that have gathered there or to kill quite as wantonly or wound quite as wantonly as they have been. The Trump administration's position, um, uh, and we talked about this a little in the last episode, but it has continued to be, uh, this is all on Hamas, the victims are bringing it on themselves, Israel has no blame for this. And I'm just, you know, as I sort of look forward, I'm wondering whether this is gonna have repercussions for us? Um, so it, it will. I, I can't resist going back just to the Russians for one second and saying, you know, when I was reading the, the stories about Don Jr. and, and Jared in those meetings, uh, I was uh, I, I wanted to do kind of a little puppet show of them like lunging across the desk saying, you've got to give us more. You've got to give us. I mean, they so palpably wanted more dirt from the Russians. 
that, you know, it just seems like it's it, it was unseemly how how uh, the whole thing went down. And at the end of the day, I think I hope Evelyn will agree with me. The Russians are once again doing a great job at sort of screwing up everyone three ways from Sunday because they've left such a wonderful trail uh, of um, helping Trump on the one hand, but undermining him at the same time so that we're in a state of perpetual chaos and really can't do the basic job of government. Um, it, you know, they, they really are masters of chaos in, in that regard. But on the uh, on the Hamas thing in the Middle East, look, the... Uh, you know, it's just a it's a horrifying situation. And um, the Israelis, um, you know, have really, I think, uh, found themselves in an untenable position. I think it was Carl Bildt who said uh, uh, in, in, a, in a piece in the last day or two that uh, the live fire uh, approach is just unsustainable. And for the uh, White House and the State Department uh, to put all of the uh, all of the blame on Hamas, it's just not going to pass the straight face test in the international community. Uh, so many of the people who have been injured are, or killed, you know, are people who are have nothing to do directly with Hamas. I mean, they're, they're uh, distraught um, uh, Palestinians who uh, live in, this, uh, in these uh, unbelievable circumstances and are at the breaking point. And I think that's the bigger uh, story here, which is that uh, you have a large population that has uh, that that simply can't take it anymore and are susceptible to these calls to do things in which they're going to be manipulated and ultimately become uh, the targets of people using uh, live ammo. Uh, the Israelis have fallen into into a trap in terms of uh, shooting them, uh, shooting at them. Uh, the Palestinians themselves are being manipulated by, uh, you know, the worst among them. So uh, the whole situation is just is can, tragic and uh, can, can't go on like this. And can I just jump in on that, though? You know, I don't think it's accurate to say that they're all being manipulated. Uh, some of them are probably being manipulated. Any large group of people, you get some people who are being manipulated. But but I also think, you know, some, somebody on Twitter, I don't remember who commented about this situation, uh, you know, for the Israelis, look, if you lock people in cages, don't be surprised when they get angry and start trying to escape. Um, and Gaza is essentially a, a cage. Um, I don't know if the rest of you have been to Gaza, but but I remember I was there uh, years ago, shortly before the second Intifada started. And um, as an American who, who had never been there and heard about it, um, it was the the first time that that I sort of psychologically understood the phenomenon of suicide bombing, you know, which had always just seemed baffling to me. Why would anybody do that? How crazy? Why would you blow yourself up? You know, and and Gaza is awful. Uh, it is awful. It is a tiny little strip of land. Um, it is essentially, you know, dusty and treeless and dry and full of rubble, you know, created by successive bombing campaigns. Um, there is nothing there. People can't get out. You know, you're trapped in this tiny little stretch of land, just a few miles long and a couple miles wide. And there's no future. There's nowhere to go. You know, you are absolutely trapped in a tiny little cage full of nothingness. And it's entire, you know, I, I, you, you go there and you can feel the desperation, the sense that these are human beings who have essentially been put in a cage uh, for no reason other than the accident of their birth. Um, and, you know, I don't think you have to be manipulated to get... To, to get angry, to become hopeless, to become desperate, to become desperate enough to say, 
I don't care who I'm standing next to. I have nothing else. I have no alternatives. And if they shoot me, they shoot me. What do I have to go back to? So I, I, I agree with most of what you're saying, Rosa, but I do think that the uh, uh, this is a case sort of of elective affinities. The uh, Hamas wants to have this uh, tableau of, uh, of slaughter of uh, innocent people or people who have just reached the breaking point. And at the same time, some of those people do feel exactly the way that you have uh, uh, describe them. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the sum is just, is just an overwhelming tragedy, uh, and really a, an inexcusable situation. No, I think that's right. Well, you know, and you say it's a cage, it's a prison, you know, and I find one of the things that's most horrifying is that the Israeli argument as well, you know, they're, they're, they're threatening the border. Well, first of all, not everybody's threatening the border. Secondly, they're threatening the border with rocks and burning tires for the most part. Thirdly, on the other side of the border is a very powerful army that can contain them in a hundred ways that don't necessarily involve gunning these people down. But fourthly, the conditions within Gaza would make anybody press to get out and change the situation. And those are conditions for which the Israelis are responsible. Um, and so... The defense, which some Israelis are putting up, that you know Hamas is there, and some of these actors are bad actors, um, uh, and 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 are provoking this, uh, seems to me to be you know outrageous and really the slimmest kind of defense. Evelyn, do you have a view on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty disturbed about the turn of events because I think this whole you know, Trump administration policy has devolved into yet another example of doing something symbolic and something to deliver on a campaign promise. But the thing that they do is not embedded in a strategy that brings stability. Instead, all it's done is, you know, increase the instability, you know, leaving aside the blame that you can put on Hamas and Hezbollah, certainly. Um, I don't think that our ally Israel has been helpful to themselves or certainly to the broader and the, and the larger um, objective that we uh, would like, which is, first of all, Arab-Israeli peace and then, of course, regional stability. I think that the Jerusalem embassy decision plus the Iran nuclear deal decision have served to take the eye off the ball, which is the civil war waged in and around Syria, um, which is, other people call it a proxy war, you know, between Iran and, uh, or Sunnis and Shias, whatever you want to call it. That's the issue that we need to deal with now. That's the issue we need to help all the players resolve, because the bottom line is nobody's getting out of Syria alive unless the United States is there to guarantee some kind of legitimacy for whatever the political solution is, at least for our side of the negotiating table, if you will. And by that, I mean Turkey, the Syrian opposition, um, the Kurds, etc. So I, I, I am just concerned that while we are all paying attention to all the Trump, um, you know, campaign promise deliveries, we're not paying attention to the fact that we're on the precipice of having a far more explosive situation in the Middle East writ large. I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, just to wrap things up, uh, and I try always to end on a, on a, a you know, sort of... <laughs> I know, sorry, that was such a downer. 
No, no, it's absolutely right. I just like to end on an uplifting note, which is why I always turn to Rosa. Um, um, I thought that was Corey's job. Isn't she wearing the tiara of optimism normally? Yes, but she's going off to like a dinner party. You know, Corey's leading a life, right? She oh, was yeah. running around the other day, going from Paris to London. Now she's at a dinner party because, of course, she's five hours ahead of us. There was a story yesterday that I found harder to believe than most. Uh, it said that Donald Trump had gone to visit Melania in the hospital for 90 minutes. And I just I just couldn't imagine the two of them sitting there in the room for 90 minutes. And I, I was wondering what your take was on this. Uh, <laughs> I have no take on that, David. I'm, I have absolutely nothing to say about that. Yeah, well, I, I'm not. You're a wise woman. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just I just wanted to cover it so we cover 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 everything. Well, we didn't cover everything. One more more thing. Let me pose this to you, Rosa. The, the um, uh, it, it seems the more we learn about the 2016 election, and now you have bipartisan intelligence committee saying that the Russians were intervening uh, to help Trump. Uh, that the intelligence community was right about that. Uh, you also have news of an FBI effort long before Mueller. Uh, which knew that they were out to help Trump, uh, but that didn't say it. Um, and uh, it seems to me that the more we learn, the clearer it is that Hillary Clinton got screwed big time in the election um, by decisions made by these folks. Um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. I think that's that's true. I think we've, to some extent, obviously, we've known that all along, that, you know, while Hillary Clinton in many ways has always been her own worst enemy, that she she also got screwed um, and, you know, had had almost any one of several things gone ever so slightly differently that she would be in the White House today and not Donald Trump. Um, and needless to say, it's worth just reminding everybody once again that she did, in fact, win the popular vote. Uh, most Americans preferred her to Donald Trump in the White House, but that's not the system we have. Um, I, you know, I, I think the 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 tragedy of all of this, um, you know, is that we we have an electoral system that we, for some rather bizarre reason, we're we're very proud of our constitution and we're always boasting about how it's the oldest written constitution in the world and so on and so forth. Um, we have we have given our constitution. Um, a a sort of we put it on a pedestal. We, we we treat it essentially like it's it's the revealed truth straight from God, as opposed to no, this was a document drafted in a in a quasi legal, arguably unlawful process by a bunch of human beings who were squabbling bitter with e bitterly with each other more than 200 years ago, and it set up a system that in many ways was brilliant and in many other ways has turned out to be extremely poorly suited to modern realities, and we are stuck with it. You know, if we were one of, of numerous other countries, including most of our closest allies, there would be some mechanism for saying, hey, looks like there was massive evidence of fraud in this election, we need a do-over, or let's have a no-confidence vote, or let's hold earlier elections, because we clearly have a problem here. Um, but, but we have this, this very creaky system, which is very difficult to change and very rigid in all kinds of ways, the upshot of which is even despite a really overwhelming evidence and bipartisan acceptance of the fact that uh, the election was deliberately meddled in by foreign powers and that numerous internal decisions further contributed to skewing the election results. We are stuck with this guy. 
Well, there you have I'm, it. But I'm going to go slip my wrist now, okay? I know. Was that the positive, uplifting way you want to end this? <laughs> well, that, that's, I always try to have a little moment but you of know what? gloom. No presidency lasts forever. That is one brilliant aspect of our constitution. That's what you think. Yeah, right. It was Rosa. I knew Rosa was going to come in and say no presidency lasts forever. <laughs> and unless it ends in the apocalypse. Um, right. Exactly. I, I know, know how she thinks. Well, folks, that was the uplifting legal take from the associate dean of the Georgetown School of Law, one of America's finest schools of law. Um, and so take that home, chew on that tonight. Uh, and uh, join us again next week for more fun and games here at Deep State Radio, because there's always something new and uplifting to talk about. Dan, we want to thank you from up there in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, Evelyn, we want to thank you from D.C. Corey, wherever you are at your dinner party, sipping champagne and, uh, you know, having whatever people have in British dinner parties these days. Um, uh, and, uh, and Rosa, thank you very, very much. And we'll see you all again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.